This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And soon we're going to be joined here at The Party by Shane Wright, Senior Economics Correspondent for the Nine Newspapers, The Age and the City Morning Herald. We're talking about the budget that was handed down this week, Josh Frydenberg's third budget as Treasurer, which was, well, let's call it a spendathon. The Treasurer hates that description. He prefers to call it a pandemic budget. But whatever its title, the fact is it's a budget that hands out $100 billion in spending and tax cuts. It locks in $1 trillion of net debt by 2025 and budget deficits for at least a decade. So there's no hint anymore of when budget repair will begin. The Treasurer is back in the black coffee mugs that he had printed so triumphantly for the 2019 budget are on their way to Vinnie's. Well, OK, I made that up, but you know what I mean. Yep. PK, no call for them for a while yet. No, no, they're being discontinued, Fran, that's absolutely right, or smashed in um, some sort of, um, you know, moment. Dumpster. dumpster. Dumpster moment. Look, Fran, there are always assumptions underpinning a budget, and the assumptions underpinning this budget have been the controversial elements, in my view. The two key assumptions this year refer to the pandemic measures on vaccines, essentially, and border closures. And that announcement, which we discussed in our little little edition yesterday that hopefully you've all got a chance to listen to by now, of opening up the international border in the middle of next year, that's more than six months longer than what was forecast in October's budget has been contentious. Here's how the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, explained it at the National Press Club on Wednesday. What we have seen is an increase in the global number of cases, new variants, and uh, real issues about the transmissibility of the virus. And we cannot afford to take the risk right now um, to open our borders in a way that would compromise the health of Australians. So we're unapologetic about putting the health of Australians first. Ultimately, this is primarily a health crisis with a very severe economic impact. And our economic recovery would be put in doubt if we weren't able to successfully suppress the virus. So that's an unapologetic treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, explaining the announcement in this budget that international borders are likely to be closed until mid-next year and even then only a gradual reopening. Now, PK, as you said, this is later than we thought, than we've been told in the past. How do we explain this? What's behind this? It, it, my view looking on, it's either based on them not really expecting that the nation will be vaccinated much before then, or based on a political calculation that closed borders and keeping citizens safe has worked well for premiers at state elections and the federal government is ripping a page out of the same playbook. What do you think? I think it's column A, column B. It's both of those things. It is... Now, um, the government's view that we are an incredibly risk-averse nation after suppressing the virus so successfully and that, that we don't have an appetite for having this virus back. Now, if we were to open our borders earlier and the PM engaged in this conversation with Lee Sales in his interview, 
the reality is if you open your borders, even if you do, let's say, miraculously have everyone vaccinated or everyone who wants to be and you've got herd immunity, you're still going to have much higher numbers of, of COVID. It spreads. It still will spread, right? Like even if people don't get as sick, which is the point of, of, of having vaccine. a vaccine, right? So you don't get as sick. The government has made a calculation that people are just not prepared to, to do that. They can't countenance that. And it would be political suicide for them to create that scenario any earlier and in a political cycle. And you can imagine Labor hammering them if they did. So why would they take that risk? Well, that's true, I guess. But what about the economic impact of that? I mean, the tourism sector is screaming after hearing this on budget night because that they've got to get, from their point of view, for their economics of scale, even though every single Australian seems to be travelling at the moment to somewhere in Australia, they need to get the international borders open for their finances to start working. Again, the airlines, the same. We can't keep propping up the airlines. I know Shane, who we're talking to later, has some information about how having the borders and having the domestic economy actually pumping as it is with all this money coming in and all these people moving about has actually been good for job creation and it's quite good economically. But longer term, it's unsustainable. We need you know, migration. That's what our economy is based on. And the tourism sector and others should think we're still going to raise merry hell. I pressed Simon Birmingham, the finance minister, who was the tourism minister, about this very thing. And he said, and I asked him if these half-priced flights, for instance, would be extended now that Qantas has announced that it can't reopen its international routes because of this decision. So this has caused them to change their strategy. And it's obvious why. And he said that that argument, that the internal domestic environment is so, the the internal um dynamic is that the tourism industry is essentially booming because people are travelling internally and that there's no case at this stage. Yeah, that's parts of it. It's not everyone. Totally. They're not going to stay in the CBDs, for instance. All those international um, tourists who, who might come down to Sydney to look at the Opera House, and all that, that, that's not really happening. It's the beauty spots of, you know, Broome or Uluru. Oh, absolutely. Or... Yeah. And the other thing is, and also it has benefited from the half-price flight, so if, yeah. you know, that was my point about extending it or doing something else. The other point of this is I do think, and I said column A, column B, I do think the vaccine rollout has been a big issue Obviously, everyone mm-hmm. knows that. And the government has really mismanaged its communications around this, saying, wasn't it Josh Frydenberg saying that two doses would be available to all eligible Australians by the end of the year? Well, I heard that on Budget Night in the press conference. Did you hear that? Oh, the... So many people heard that, right? That, in fact, that it was a one-word answer. Yes. <laughs> so it was clear. And ever since, senior government ministers and the Prime Minister have been walking that back. Now, is it expectation management or is it because they just know that it's impossible? I mean, Richard Colbeck told you in your interview on recording this Thursday morning, yeah, one dose by the end of the year, and that that was always the plan. That was the line that got me. That was always our – we we, we never expected. Whatever it is, it's a stuff-up in Budget Week to have these different answers coming from different senior ministers, including the Prime Minister. Especially on the government's biggest vulnerability. So let's get to the budget. I mean, I don't think the budget is its biggest vulnerability at all. I think the budget – I mean, it was beautifully put by a Labor MP I spoke to yesterday, and I said, what's your strategy, right? Like this budget, and the opposition leader will be delivering his budget in reply on Thursday night. I said, this budget must have just completely blunted your response. And this person, quite senior, said to me, our strategy is we don't want to talk about this budget. Now, why would they not want to talk about this budget? Because the budget, like, is 
Because it's a spendathon. Yeah, like it's a decent kind of budget. Some people would say it's labour life. Every right? player wins a prize. That's right. So they don't want to talk about the budget. They want to talk about the vaccine rollout stuff ups. And that is their focus. And the government made it easier for them, I think, this week yeah. by fudging this vaccination rollout line. PK, we always knew we were going to get some kind of women's statement in this budget. We ended up getting it $3.4 billion. It encapsulates everything. You know, that includes the $1.7 billion childcare package, but $1.1 billion for women's safety and security. This is very much in the wake of and sparked by the Brittany Higgins rape allegations within Parliament House uh, earlier in the year. I think if Brittany Higgins hadn't come out with that allegation and then we saw a whole seemed to me a raft of allegations of sexual misconduct in Parliament House, I don't think we would have got this statement. It's good that we have. It seems to me the government ministers, the female government ministers in particular, have been put in charge of this, have gone to the agencies, the services, the the refuges, the legal centres and said, okay, how do we fix it? And they've adopted a lot of those measures, which is fantastic. But the whole issue of the government being forced to this? Do you think that doesn't matter anymore, that people are going to forget this? You know, this is really a big a big sorry note, really, from the government. Uh, but doesn't that doesn't matter anymore. We've just got to look at what they are doing and applaud that and, and push for more. I think the voters who already had made their mind up about the way the government managed particular issues around women. Because the PM was very vulnerable on this, wasn't he? His, his response he's still was, vulnerable. was wrong-footed. He's still vulnerable. And, and this doesn't fix it all. It's not like, well, it's over now, women, tick. And if they think that, they're deluded. So, no, it's he's very vulnerable on it. He continues to be vulnerable on it. I do think, though, that this goes a, a lot of the way to trying to mend that and demonstrate that, you, you know, you're going to put your money where your mouth is, mm. that it's not just rhetoric or not just trying to fix a political problem. And let's hope it's the start of something and we get these women's budget statements, women's budget every year now. Many countries do that. Australia did do it for a while. Uh, we don't do it, but it's a good idea to it's put it. It's a, a great idea, and I pressed um, Jane Hume, the minister responsible for women's economic security, on this, and she said, yes, they should be. This is what we should do, and it won't be just a one-off. We agree. I actually pressed her, Fran, also, because I know it's your passion, and I thought I channeled Fran Kelly in my <laughs> interview on childcare and the funding boost there being you know, included on the women's list and saying, shouldn't you lead by example, that even by putting it in that category that you are making a gendered statement. And she said, I you totally get it. She actually seemed to. She said, I get it, but equally it's women disproportionately affected, so it makes sense. And anyway, so you know, can Thanks, see BK. both sides. I did. I, and actually, you know, you were in my head. You were. You were like completely overwhelming my thinking. Um, I wonder if she noticed. But I think that they are trying something significant here. I want to say, because I really feel this very passionately, that I'm very sad that it took Brittany Higgins to achieve this. I think she's a hero for having achieved this. But what I think is sad is the many Indigenous women who've stood up and talked about the violence they've experienced. And this isn't just on the government. And it didn't spark this kind of response. Yeah, This isn't just on the government. This is on this country and who we connect with. And Brittany knows this. Brittany Higgins knows this. Mm. And she's used the power that she has to try and achieve good for the other women. Yeah. And but there the was money in this for Indigenous women's Absolutely. Services. But the fact that when they have spoken up, overwhelmingly there hasn't been that response, I think is a national shame. And people should think about why we connect with some people more than others. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really, it must be so disheartening. Um, Just before we leave this and bring in Shane, just on the whole Brittany Higgins thing, and it goes to the government's real determination to respond and how it is responding. 
We also got word from the Prime Minister this week that uh, the head of his department, Phil Gaitchens, has resumed the internal investigation into his office about who knew what when about these allegations. Now, this has like been going on for three months, PK. It got stalled for a while, Phil Gaitchens said, because the police commissioner asked him to. Well, OK, fair enough. But honestly, doesn't he have to walk into an office and just ask a few people what they knew? Wouldn't that take three hours, not three months? I would have thought a sort of solid afternoon of work. Absolutely. You could <laughs> achieve that. Uh, I don't know. It's a ghost look. In Come the on. Northern Territory government, they've just, in the parliament, they've just made the word incompetent unparliamentary. You're not allowed to use the word incompetent. It's not, it's unparliamentary. And I reckon I'm going to use it. It's rather incompetent that it's taken this long to find out such basic information. It's either incompetent or intransigent, I think, but it tells us something. It tells us a big story. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Shane Wright, Senior Economics Correspondent for Nine Newspapers, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room. It is so good to be in a room with both of you lovely ladies. How good a real is room. this? A real room. Shane, budget week for a guy like you, this is like, you know, Christmas the Oscars or something. Christmas and <laughs> Easter Oscars. and the Oscars and the Grammys. Okay, but this time, PK and I have just been discussing this, we knew most of what was coming. It's always different, though, when you've got you know a numbers guy like you, the real numbers to drill into. I wonder what's your headline for this budget and were there really any surprises for you, not just in terms of policies but in terms of the settings and the forecasts and if you could discuss that in terms that we'll all understand, like wages. <laughs> there is no pressure on me. Like we're gonna... You really set him up there, Fran. <laughs> Thanks for that. Split ends, icy red. That's where I'm coming from, uh, for those who are old enough to remember split ends before Crowded House. If you're not, it goes, I see red, I see red, I see red. Yeah, early 80s, great New Zealand band with a few Australians in it. That's what's got me in terms of the numbers. And there's one other thing, and you're right, Fran, so much of this was pre-leaked. Like, there was not a great deal of surprise in I was shocked. Just how much they've tumbled out. But the interesting thing is that, and this is for the nerds and amongst us all, is the change in the government's fiscal strategy long term. And this comes back to why we're going to see red for a very long time. Now, cast our minds back to 2014. Joe Hockey becomes treasurer. Him and then Finance Minister Matthias Cormann set out a fiscal strategy. We are aiming for budget surpluses of 1%, at least 1% of GDP over the estimates, forward estimates. We will do that by offsetting every spending initiative with a cut somewhere else in the budget. If the economy gives us a windfall gain, say high iron ore prices, which at the time a high iron ore price was about 90 bucks a tonne, we will bank that. We're not going to go on any spending spree. Don't be crazy. That was the policy that guided the coalition even till 2019. Mm. And then that has dramatically changed. And there's a few things going on in for why that change has occurred. Well, Pandemic. Yeah, well, pandemic. No. Sure. Isn't that oh, the answer? Oh, that's the easy Good. answer. Good answer. Because I knew but not right. you would contest it. Why I'm, isn't it right? Right. What else is going on here? And this is this comes to where we were pre-pandemic. Now, I'm going to go back, a, not so far back in time. Josh Frydenberg does his, spe- his first budget speech back in April 2019, says, oh, we've got to think about the children. We can't leave them all this debt. Six, seven weeks later, the Reserve Bank gets up and starts cutting official interest rates. It says the economy has to start growing faster. Wages aren't going anywhere. Wages have gone nowhere for the last six years. Mm. They took official interest rates from one and a half to 0.75 in four months. 
in the immediate wake of an election. That's a huge wake-up call. That's one arm of the official economic policy bunch in this country saying to the other, aka Treasury slash the Treasurer, you guys have got it wrong. The budget is actually a bit too tight. It's hurting wages. It's hurting inflation. The economy is not growing fast enough. And the if economy you... stalling is what they were saying. They were saying, That's please right. spend, please help. Please spend. And you had that, that proof of life video, which was Josh Frydenberg <laughs> next to Phil Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank down in Melbourne, saying, oh, we're all on the same track. <laughs> they weren't. Now, we get to the, uh, a paper that was released just before the budget from Treasury, which is about the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, NARU, which Treasury goes, oh, yeah, the Reserve Bank might be right. We need unemployment to be a lot lower if we're going to get wages growing. And to do that, you actually need to spend. Ergo, you've got a budget that has no spending cuts except for poor old migrants who yeah. happen to come in here and are going to get uh, left by in the gutter for the next four years. Everything else is we're going to throw money out, throw money out. We need to get the economy growing faster. That is a, in terms of change in economic policy or budget policy, I don't know if we've seen anything bigger since perhaps the transition from the coalition to Whitlam in 72. So, it is a major change. And you're not saying it's not just a pandemic-based thing. It was actually, it predates the pandemic. It pre that predates the pandemic. And the pandemic has given them a bit of, not cover, well, you had you to respond. I wouldn't use that word. But it has, it's fed directly into the pandemic response. Okay, but is this going to be any, cause them any political difficulties? Because people like getting money, okay? The only reason <laughs> I do. think that, that the Australian public was so focused on debt and deficit was because for the coalition for years were yelling at them and sending debt trucks around the streets and things like that, and that became Labor's headache, and they sort of hung it very successfully around Labor's yeah. neck as a problem. So this is a dramatic shift. Now, debt and deficit, far as the eye can see, we don't have to worry. But politically, We do have to worry. But is I'm, worry I'm worried, Fred. do you think generally <laughs> the electorate will worry much about it because the electorate likes getting services? It likes getting mm. dollars and handouts and tax cuts. That's right. and But that was also the theory of John Howard in the 2007 mm. election campaign. If you remember... The, you, everyone remembers Kevin Rudd getting up and saying this reckless spending must end. Mm. That came after John Howard's address in which he was going to shower parents with thousands of dollars in assistance. And the voters at the time made a choice and they fed into, and Labor had picked it up, this is what's going on. Whether that continues now is a yes. different story. I grant because you that. Because the pandemic has changed things. That's the pandemic has changed things, but running uh, huge deficits as they are, if you can deliver your services, but if it doesn't deliver wages growth, then I think this, this has been an ongoing issue for so long. If you're not getting wages growth, then you've got grumpy people. Mm. The shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, said the budget was put together with an eye on an election. And I think he's, he's partly right there. And also that there was a deficit of vision and that it was a, a shameless political fix. That's Labor's lines. Now, we're recording this before Anthony Albanese delivers his very important, I think, um, budget in reply. So we can't give you all of that, but we've got a flavour anyway, yeah. so we'll be fine uh, to help you understand politics. You'll be good. But Labor's got a really big issue now, don't they, Shane? Because essentially this budget has neutralised a number of the vulnerabilities of the government, that Labor planned to campaign on. Childcare was a big one. Okay. I don't know if it's all fixed, but but certainly it's neutralised some of that problem. 
Where does Labor go? I mean, does 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 uh, I'm going to go there? Does Anthony Albanese stand up and say, "I'll end this reckless spending," like Kevin Rudd in 2007 yep. when he declared himself a fiscal conservative? Does he do that, or does he outspend the coalition because we are in this situation? What do does that. he do? Well, I actually like I know some of the political pundits in the gallery think, "Oh, this has narrowed the opportunities for Labor." I think it's broadened it because you have a government. Buckets full of money to spend Bucket how full they of like money. it. Now, if you go back to last October when Albanese announced the childcare policy, uh, the government ran out Jane Hume to say, oh, they're not paying for it. They haven't said how they'll pay for this policy. Yep. You can't run that... You, the government can't run that campaign when they're running a deficit of $106, 107000000000 billion and another $100 billion next year. And they can't they, say how does Labor plan to pay for it. And they're going to have to... Both sides are going to have to deliver a tax cut in the election. They have to make that promise because of the low and middle income it, tax offset issue. Except, Shane, it's always more dangerous for a Labor government, not just this Absolutely. one, always Labor governments, to be seen to be profligate, to be seen not to be the best economic managers. Whenever you have those polls, those surveys, the, the coalition always does better than Labor in terms of economic management. So it's a, it's a weak spot for Labor. Anthony Albanese, well before the budget a week or two ago, has already come out and said, I'm going to be cautious in my attitude to spending. In other words, he's not going to have those big spending promises that Bill Shorten had last election, where the evidence now suggests that scared off the electorate a bit. Well, it was the big spending. It was the big, it was the taxing side of things, which I think played more yeah, into it. Yeah, but I think also those big headline numbers, there were so many of there them. Were, there were, but I, you look at, say, the advertising. gearing, all of that the stuff. The gearing and yeah. the death tax issue, which played which hugely, not, it played hugely through Queensland. Yeah, but which was not a death tax. Exactly. No, exactly. no, I'm not saying it is, but that was, the, for that, was, <laughs> that was the advertising around it. But you can see the government was able to tap that okay. fear. So what yeah. you're saying, though, is Labor, though, now has all this money, no, no pressure on them to deliver None. surpluses. So there's all that money out there. They can repurpose it in their own vision. Where do you think Anthony Albanese might take that? Well, this is where you... Right, I think climate change will be one area because it... It's absent from... It's absent. It is absent. So you can, you know, right, there's one space. They've gone, the government has gone for a few big ticket infrastructure projects. You know that they they are there, but you can also say, right, there's extra money that we can spend in regional Queensland mm -hmm. or in, in and around Perth, which is where, this is where the election is going to be won and, yep. won and lost, is where those key seats across both of those states, Labor has to make ground in them to win. So you can see that in that, that area. And in aged care, there is actually more space for them to spend. So that, they're just three key areas. And you can see the line that they're already starting to run, which Jim Chalmers has been going on, is around rorts and bad spending decisions. Yes. So and I'm not saying they can, but you could mount this argument, right, we are better at targeting our expenditure. We are not going to give it to our mates. We're not going to... Uh, thump up people onto the board of, I don't know, some public broadcasters that I could name. Like, you can feed into that because, remember, this is a government that is going to be nine years old. Now, we don't have that many governments. They, they keep get refreshing beyond nine. with new leaders. <laughs> they do, but, uh, look, that's the issue there. Another perhaps area of opportunity, should we put it that way, for Labor would be around wages, wouldn't it? Because the government, had we been given this message that it's going to focus on getting more jobs, as it gets the unemployment rate down, it's got to get down below five, it's got to start with a four, for us to get some pressure to build wages. As you say, we've been waiting six or seven years for a wage increase. But when you drill into the detail of these figures, what you see in a couple of years' time is 
there's not only is there no wages growth, but actually workers will be worse off because CPI, mm-hmm. according to the Treasury figures, is going up higher than wages. Yeah, real wages fall. That's a disaster, isn't it? Yes, and it, like well, it's disaster it, it, might be overstating it, but no, for well, individuals, for, for families, yeah. I mean that's Labor's line, right? They'll be using a variation. Not of, just for families, for your anyone. wages aren't going up, yeah. but when you go to the supermarket, everything costs more. And right? it's not just a that's line; right. it's actually there, written in the treasury figures. That's right, and and that How does is the government ha- get around that. Well, we could go back to the 1980s and have centralised wage fixing. That would be one way to do it. No, but I mean, how do they deal with this criticism? this is it. So this is where you get to the point you actually have to run the economy even faster than what these guys are predicting. Now, they've got the economy growing at four and a quarter for 21-22, and then it steps down to two and a half, then to two and a quarter. That is an economy, like, that's an economy not growing fast enough. That is with interest rates at point one. The RBA is got, like, Phil Lowe's got his printing machines mm. producing mm. cash to throw to the banks to bring bring everything down, uh, the cost of borrowing down for everyone, plus you're running a budget deficit of $100 billion. If that's not enough to get the economy growing at three to four, then you're in trouble. But you really are, and that doesn't give you the wages growth. I go back to the middle of last year where Scott Morrison, a former treasurer, said we will to repay debt, we will need to run the economy at least a full percentage point above trend for four to five years. The last time that happened, the Beatles visited the country, <laughs> okay? It, it doesn't happen very often at all. And, like, they've actually moved away from that policy position, not a policy position, but it clearly articulated what the government was thinking, how they would get back to where they needed to I be. I asked Tanya Plibersek, who I interviewed about, you know, your focus clearly, you can see it from the questions in question time, is now on wages. What's your solution? And she's at industrial relations reform. Yes. That's how you could do it. And but clearly... That's going to be yeah, well, contentious. Sally Manus, the ACTU secretary, was saying that on my show this morning too. That was her pitch as well. But then again, you go, you get to the point, right? The government never wants to outline its position in terms of a minimum wage increase. Like, oh no, that's somebody else. You've got business groups of saying, yeah, real wage wages are going to go up. Wages mm. are going to go up. The evidence has come in, and it's not in their favour. So, and this is a debate. This is a debate going around the world. Why have wages? step down. And even the central banks come back to it. One of them is that workers have less power, aka unions aren't as strong as they used to be. Jeff Bezos with his super yacht and everything, that sort of impact is... Well, the the, gig economy. I mean, that's 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 part of it too. The gig is part of it, but it is the way that technology has given huge benefits to a few and everybody else struggling and it's actually hitting the middle classes and that's why both sides of politics know that's a contentious problem like if it's the working class okay we can get by with it but if it's people earning 100 120,000 not getting a pay rise oh hold on this is a political problem mm-hmm. now now before i let you go shane or we let you go moderna has struck this deal to supply 25 million doses in australia and that's you know, in, in a week, and we discussed this when we were alone at the beginning, um, the, where the vaccine rollout has been contentious, whether you get the two jabs, as Josh Frydenberg said, or the one jab, and then... Everyone gets a jab before the end of the year or a few gate, months after. Right, jab gates kind of unfolded. I'm not convinced by jab gates. Is it? I'm not convinced <laughs> oh, by on, that it's term. all right. But the Moderna deal is quite key, but it also further marginalises, does it not, AstraZeneca? It does. There's been this argument that we were slow in terms of broadening 
our risks mm. to begin with. Like mm. we've been our palette of vaccines. We've been talking for years about Australia's too dependent on China as a market. We became we were narrowed in terms of our choice around uh, vaccines. So this is really it is a really good development. But again, it's later into next year and into next year. Like that whole issue around vaccination, it's been more focused on the message rather than the delivery. But Shane, I think what PK was getting at is, yeah, it's good news to have more vaccines on offer, but is that going to mean all those people over 50s have been now streamed to the AstraZeneca rollout, some of them really worried about the blood clotting issue, might go, oh, well, I'll just wait till the end of the year and then I'll get, I'll get Moderna because that doesn't have those issues. This could be counter... It could be, but I don't, I, I don't know if we've seen enough evidence that there are people over 50 who've, who've been reticent. I, think it, I still think mm. it's... I'm not well, sure. I'm hearing it. Well, I, my mum got it done the other day and my dad, who are both in their 70s, I went, right, that's right. They, okay, mum's a trained nurse. She doesn't that fear, she doesn't fear <laughs> vaccines and dad does what he's told. Um, so that's an advantage in that family. But I, ha I think the biggest risk continues to be under 50. And you can see, what, say, with the US, where they're allowing teenagers to get the vaccine um, and focusing on them. Like, I, I still think our rollout has been poor when you look at the New York is talking about allowing it to be given at subways. Mm. Like, we haven't thought, mm -hmm. like, we're getting excited about a, what was it I heard this week, a, a purpose built, a high tech vaccination centre. It was a bloody shed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But Let's most of us have over. to go to the GP, and, and that's going to be slower. And that's the policy choice that we've made. Once you make a choice, you can then compare it to where, what other people are doing, and you go, oh, was it the right choice? Don't know. Shane, so fun to pick your brain in person. It's so fun to see both of you yeah, in it's person. Good, isn't it? I it know, is. it's great. I'm, I'm happy. It. Here we well, are. You've just spiced up the budget for me. My goodness, you need to get out more. Yeah, I do. <laughs> see you, see you, see you guys. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time, and I promise you this is a much more fun question time than the question time I watched <laughs> yesterday, which was so boring I thought I'm going to fall into a coma, and I love question time. But this week's question comes from Noah, who writes... Have there been more leaks or pre-announcements about what's in the budget this year than in previous years? Okay. Well, I know you say yes to this question, <laughs> PK, and I know you'll explain that in a moment. I think, well, probably yes, but it's been going this way for a long time now. And what's it about, Noah? Because, you know, why do, we used to go, what's the rabbit in the hat? The Treasurer always have a rabbit in the hat. That was a phrase we used every single year, to be honest. No we rabbits. Are repetitive people. No, no rabbits this year. But I think it's all about media management, expectation management. The government knew there was going to be some big announcements. They wanted to make sure each and every one of them got headlines and full coverage in the weeks coming up. That's why it's done this way. I'm pretty sure if there was real nasties, they might get buried, but this was not a year for nasties. So I think that's why it explains it. Does it matter? I don't really think it matters. What matters is budget bottom lines. What matters is forecasts. What matters is what this government is doing um, to make change, you know, positive change in policy, in perhaps your future wages, those kind of settings. That's what really matters. Does it matter if we find out about it a week before? Personally, I don't really think so. Yeah, and I think it's important to say. So yeah, you're right because I've told Fran this in our own conversations privately. She I think it's boring. I know. I just I think the budget is. I've said it's substantial, good spending in in lots of important areas. I do, but I think the budget 
And when I say boring, I mean, how did, I'll give him, I'll quote him, he won't mind. Phil Curry said to me in question time yesterday, and our usual second day story about a measure that's going to stall in the Senate, we don't even have that, right? Because it's a budget that no one will oppose. And that's what I mean. I mean it politically, that because I'm a... a Political an, animal. Yeah, and I look at sort of the conflict and, and, you know, what's contentious and there is nothing that anyone's going to block, so it's all just going to go through. So that's what I mean. The, the budget, other than the bit that's market sensitive about, you know, forecasts and all of that, but the rest of it, right... It's a political exercise in selling a government's agenda. So whether a government wants to do it over a week and get more bang for its buck so that, you know, you don't have to deal with aged care, childcare announcements all in one day, well, I don't know. That's kind of the, the benefit of being a government, that you get the chance to do that. I don't think it matters. Now, remember, if you've got questions, we love, we love getting your questions. Send them in. You can tweet them using the hashtag, the party room, or email your questions to the party room at abc.net.au. Remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. Uh, Keep them coming. That's it from us for The Party Room this week. Two party rooms in person. One of the best weeks we've had, Fran. When too much podcasting is never enough. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.